Hi, good morning. Today we are reading Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slept out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So it was still dark. I went to the Kidron Valley, instead inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about the gracious hand of God had been on me, and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed, yeah. Um, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> are you rebelling against the king, they asked? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. You may be seated. As we've gotten to the story of Nehemiah, the reading skill level has gone way up. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of big names, a lot of big names. So uh, thank you, Skylar, for reading for us. Hey, before I jump into the message, uh, I, I do just want to emphasize, I know uh, Joe and Karen talked about it. Uh, but just in case maybe you slid in late or you, you weren't paying attention, I just I do want to emphasize just one more time why we are making a impromptu summer service schedule change. Maybe you saw the video uh, this week on social media. Uh, but our staff, after last week, we had our, you know, last week was our uh, friends and family day. And we loved being together in that one service. Now, we know long term we cannot do that logistically because of kids' space and parking and bathrooms and chairs and all that stuff. But we felt like for the summer, because people tend to come and go a little more in the summer, we had a holiday weekend coming up, we felt like we could at least take the next seven or eight weeks during the summertime and be together for that one service. So uh, I think the decision was made like four days ago. We were like, we're doing it. And I love that about Hope City, that uh, one of our core values for our, our leadership is flexibility, because good ideas are not always convenient. That's our, that's our uh, statement. And so we felt like we had a good idea and we made a last minute change. So thank you for being flexible with that. Be a part of the activities this summer. It's not just church services. It's activities, uh, things that we're doing to be together because church is not just a service. Church is a family. We say it all the time. Don't just come to church. Be a part of a church family. 
And uh, this is something that our grandparents and maybe parents were really good at, belonging to a church family. And we want to we wanna bring it back. We want to be a part of a church family. So be a part of these activities. One service throughout the entire summer, uh, unless something crazy changes, because good ideas are always convenient. Uh, but our plan is one, ser- one service throughout the summer at 1030. And then when the school year kicks back in, we'll go back, or maybe August, we'll go back to two services. We'll let you know all about that. Okay? So thanks for being flexible with us. We started this series called How to Begin Again three weeks ago, How to Begin Again Again, uh, and we're talking about rebuilding. The reason that we're calling it How to Begin Again Again is because all of us have things in our life that we want to rebuild or try again or give another go at something, and, and, we're, and, and we want to, but we're so frustrated with ourselves because we've tried before We've tried to bring it up before in the marriage. We've tried to build a bridge with the kids before in the family. We've tried to lose weight before. We've tried to get closer to Jesus before. We've tried to get out of debt before. We've tried to do all these things before and it, and it didn't go well or we didn't stick with it. And so there's some embarrassment and some shame and some anger and all of those things. And so we have dreams for our life. We have goals for our life. We have uh, things we believe God has put in our hearts and things that we wanna do, but beginning again, again, is, is hard. It's hard to do. After enough failures, it's really hard to try again. And so we decided to take a, a few weeks to talk about Nehemiah. It's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Nehemiah, and his particular book in the Bible is really just a memoir. It's, uh, it's journal entries, if you will. It's just him writing the account of what happened in his life, and he was not really that important of a person. He, he has a book in the Bible, so we kind of assume he was really important. He wasn't. He was an employee. He was, he was the king's servant, the cupbearer. He would taste the wine before the king would taste the wines. In case there was poison in it, he would die instead of the king. That was his job. And, and so he wasn't that important, but God gave him something really important to do and, and, and knew that he could be trusted with that. And so we've been reading this story of Nehemiah to, to learn some principles. It's really great in the Old Testament to, to read these stories and learn the principles that we need to, to do something significant and to, to try again, to, to build again, to rebuild something. And yeah, we're gonna fall and yeah, we're gonna fail, but we've read each week, Proverbs 24, 16, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. We're gonna try again. We're gonna bring it up again. We're gonna try to build a bridge again. We're gonna try to get out of debt again. We're gonna try to get closer to Jesus again. We're gonna try to get healthy again. We're gonna try it again. And, uh, and so we're using Nehemiah for that. So this is the third week. So far, we've talked about ownership, taking ownership, repenting, taking ownership. Last week, we talked about asking God for help and the favor of God. And I'm really excited about my message this week because I don't think that not only have I never preached about this topic, but I would be willing to bet that almost everyone in the room has never heard a sermon about the topic that we're going to talk about today. And so that gets me extra excited now that I've built it up a little bigger than I should have. Okay. (laughs) After three weeks of reading the story of Nehemiah, I cannot help but notice what we haven't read. We've read now to the end of chapter two and all that has happened. But in all that we have read, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but in all that we've read, what has stuck out to me is what we haven't read. And it's, and it's what Nehemiah hasn't done. And the reason it's so significant is because it is exactly the opposite of what you and I would do. But you don't even know what I'm talking about because it hasn't been in here. You haven't even read it. So you're not even sure exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Let me tell you. 
in three weeks, Nehemiah hasn't talked about what he's going to do, which is the exact opposite of what we do. Because what we do is we spend three weeks talking about what we're going to do before we ever do anything. This is the world that we live in. And Nehemiah hasn't posted on Instagram yet, you know, with a picture of a blueprint and a description that says, I don't wait for opportunities, I create them. You know, he hasn't posted on Facebook with a selfie, you know, that says, trust the process, trust the process. <laughs> hasn't, nothing. Nobody knows what he's up to except the king and the queen who he has, who he has met with. And here's my point. Nehemiah isn't talking about what he's going to do because Nehemiah is busy doing it. He's doing something. Now, I'm going to try my best today for the next 10 minutes to not sound snarky and old like a curmudgeon who's like aggravated with all things social media and technology, okay? I promise I'm going to try. I read my notes to Andrea last night and I said, am I being real snarky? She's like, a little bit. I was like, okay, well, a little bit's okay. Um, But man, this this is the world that we live in. If you are under the age of, I'm 38, so let's just say 40, uh, if if, if you, you, you're kind of in that bridge generation that has been, you know, heavy tech generation and then pre-tech generation, and we have been trained to live for an audience. And really what's happened, especially over the last maybe, let's just say eight to 10 years, you could argue those numbers a little bit, but really what's happened is we've given a voice and a platform to, to people that that talk more than they do, that talk more than they accomplish. And the talkers and the doers are two separate groups because the doers are too busy doing to be talking and the talkers are too busy to be talking to be doing. You understand what I'm saying? And whether it sounds like it or not, or whether it feels like it or not, this is actually a very spiritual conversation. This is a very spiritual conversation. And there are some, some reasons that we do this. There are some reasons that we talk about everything we're going to do and promote everything we're going to do and celebrate everything we're going to do before we actually do it. According to science, there are, there are two big reasons. There's more than two, but there's two big ones according to science. One reason that we do it is because research shows that that goal visualization is important. To see what you wanna do and to see where you wanna go and how you're going to accomplish it is very important, but but too much goal visualization begins to confuse your mind with actual progress. So research has found out that you can talk about what you're going to do so much that your brain actually thinks that you are doing it by talking about doing it. Or you can talk about it so much that you can believe that you have already done it, but you haven't, you haven't done it yet. And so too much talking about it, like really plays tricks with your brain. So this looks like potentially, um, you know, the first month of trying to rebuild your marriage and you're going on a date night and it's like the first or the second day and you post the selfie, date night, my forever even though y'all have just like literally thrown like plates at each other in the kitchen. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, but it's like my forever day. And, 
and what you, like you, you broadcast and promote that. And when you look at that picture, your brain thinks it's going better than it actually is because of the way that you promote it. Or the first month trying to get out of debt, posting the pics of your coupons at the grocery store, psychologically makes you feel like you're actually farther along than you are. You're not actually really any more out of debt than you were when you began, but because you're promoting somehow in some way or broadcasting somehow in some way that you're out of debt, your brain thinks, man, you're killing it. But all you did was buy a little bit cheaper cereal. There's really not that much to show for it yet. Now, if we keep buying cheaper cereal and a lot of other things, we will, cereal's probably not the issue, but I'm just saying we probably will get to where we're trying to go to, because you can't buy the cheap cereal, by the way. That's a, you can't do that. Anyway, um, the gym selfies, the morning Bible and coffee mug shots, right? Something happens when we, when we project, when we project, when we project psychologically, scientifically, something happens in your brain and your brain thinks you're awesome, but you haven't actually done it yet. You're just getting started in, in doing it. So that's one reason, but there's another reason and it's way more prevalent. And that is that all of us in the room, because of our sin and our scarcity, we feel insecure and we feel small at the beginning of any great endeavor. And so we're looking for affirmation. We're looking for validation, likes and, and comments, because that's a lot more fun than actually staring the monster in the face that you actually got to wrestle. Like what it is that you're looking to try to rebuild or to conquer or to change, it's going to take a lot out of you. And it's a lot easier and a lot more fun to just talk about it and to get affirmation for what maybe you're potentially going to do. And so, you know, your, your, your self-esteem is built and you feel better about, about yourself. And again, I know it sounds like I'm harping on social media or making fun of it. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that, but I am making the point that we live in a day where it's incredibly easy to make yourself look better than you are and to convince yourself that you're doing more than you actually are doing. And I don't know about you, this is a core conviction of mine. I can't speak for you, but it's a core conviction of mine. I wanna be more impressive in private than I am in public. I want my marriage, I want you to think I have a great marriage, but then if you get to know, you realize it's better than you thought it was. Or I want you to think that I spend time with Jesus, but if you ever spied on me, you would think, man, he spends more time with Jesus than I thought he did. And it's really easy, all of us, it's really easy for, for us to, to project that we're doing better than we're, actually, than we're actually doing. And so in our scripture reading today, we read something really, truly fascinating and almost unheard of now. In verse 12, this is what Skylar read for us. Nehemiah said, I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart. I hadn't told anyone. I read the other day, Bo Jackson, uh, when he was, went to the University of Auburn. If you know Bo, you know that Bo was one of the greatest athletes of all time. Baseball, football, two-way, track star. And he decided when he went to Auburn that he wanted to win the Heisman right? And, and he wanted to, um, what was the other thing he won? He won, the, he won to win the Heisman and he wanted to be the first draft, uh, draft pick in the NFL. But he didn't tell anybody but his girlfriend. 
And he said he would talk about it after the fact. This is kind of what Nehemiah is doing here. He's got this plan from God. He's got this purpose from God. He's already had a one-on-one conversation with the king. He's got the backing of the king, the resources of the king, the letters from the king. He's got everything that he needs. He's got the credibility, but he had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in his heart. Now, I've mentioned this a few times over the first couple of weeks, but it's worth mentioning again that historians believe that Nehemiah prayed and fasted four months before he ever approached the king. And now we read that he has the king's blessings, but he still hasn't said a word. So God gives him a burden for something, to rebuild something, to do something significant. He prays and fasts for four months, approaches the king. Then he goes and takes an inventory of what he's going to be working on, and he still hasn't said a word. And Nehemiah models something for us here that we don't talk about often, but we should. Nehemiah models Secrecy. Everybody say secrecy. I'm willing to bet you have never heard a sermon on secrecy. I know I've never preached a sermon on secrecy. But in the last few months, I have become really, really interested in secrecy because it's actually a spiritual discipline. I don't know if you knew this or not. It doesn't sound all that spiritual to talk about secrecy. But historians, church historians, list secrecy as one of the 15 classic spiritual disciplines. There are 15 disciplines that Jesus and the church modeled from the beginning of Christianity for ways for us to be filled with more of the life and the power of Jesus Christ. And one of those 15 is secrecy. I didn't know this until I started reading about it. But secrecy, it's a spiritual discipline. Prayer, fasting, worship, these are things we're very comfortable and, 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 and understand. Secrecy goes right along with this. And so for a little bit of time I have left today, I want to talk about the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Let me define it for you first. The, the, the discipline of secrecy is the practice of abstaining from drawing attention to yourself. What we're not talking about today is being dishonest, We're not talking about misleading people on purpose or or, or not sharing something because we're ashamed of it. We're, We're talking about the specific practice of abstaining from drawing attention to ourself. So the question is, why would secrecy be considered a spiritual discipline? I mean, we get Bible reading because we, you know, that makes sense because we get to learn more about God and we get prayer because we get to talk about God and we get worship because we get to, you know, give God our, our best and our attention. But, but why, why would God think that secrecy is important enough or Jesus think that or the church leaders and apostles think that secrecy was important enough to be something that would fill you with the life and the power of Jesus, why is secrecy beneficial for your soul? Why is secrecy beneficial for your soul? I got a lot of reasons, but I only got time to give you three, all right? So I'm going to give you three reasons, three reasons why, why secrecy is beneficial for your soul. And you're going to want to write these down because these will be helpful for you. And then we'll see if we can, at the end, get it really, really practical, Okay. So three reasons why secrecy is, is, is valuable for your soul. Number one is that secrecy tames the need for attention. This is kind of the definition of secrecy. So this is kind of self-explanatory. 
But the spiritual discipline of secrecy tames the need for attention. Now, some of you are like, well, that's great. I don't need that because I don't want any attention. And that's true that there are some, there's a few people that don't want any attention. But I want you to think about how often you think about other people thinking about you. Think about that for a second. I want you to think about how often you think about other people thinking about you. It's a lot. It's a lot because you think about other people too and notice other people and critique other people and have opinions about other people. And so you think about other people thinking about you a lot. And we specifically think about, or we we specifically need or feel this need to let people know what we're doing or where we're going In some specific instances, like we have apps, just let people know where we are at every moment of the day. But in a broader sense, we have kind of been trained to believe that our life needs to be consumed by other people. That that other people are interested, and maybe they are, but that other people would want to know. And so in any given moment or any given experience that we're in, and I got four kids and we're in graduation season, because you know, it's not just high school graduation anymore. It's like end of November, fourth grade graduation. You know how it is. I mean, everything's a graduation. And so um, we, we, like, it's great. And even in those moments, like, can I just be honest with you? I don't think this is great. I just want to take this in for me because my kid is graduating again. Um, I think... Can I stream this? It, 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 can, can we go live with this? Did I take enough pictures? I'm not getting good cell service. I just tried to share 42 photos with my family. And I'm not even in the moment. I'm not even there because I'm thinking that some, you want to you be a part of the second grade, just potty trained graduation in kindergarten <laughs> or whatever it is that we do. I'm trying not to be snarky. I, I don't know. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know. I don't know. It's graduation season. I don't know. Okay. What's up with the gym sound systems? I don't get it. Like they're so bad. Anyway. Okay. So, um, but we have, like, we've been trained to believe that like my, you, you need to be a part of what's happening in my life at any given moment. And I need to be a part of what's happening in your life at any given moment. And honestly, I think most of it's subconscious. I'm not saying there's some master plan for you to try to be famous or anything like that. But we have learned to broadcast our life for others to consume. So we train ourselves to live a public life. Our default mode is public life. But I want you to think about how often Jesus did the opposite. Think about how often, if you've read the Gospels, that Jesus would heal someone and Jesus would say, don't tell anyone who did this for you. Now compare that to the day that we live in. You know, you heal someone who is blind. Like you would cash in on that, right? You'd maximize that. Jesus says, like, don't tell anyone. A demon in a person says, you know, you're the son of God and Jesus quiets them so no one can know who he is, right? Jesus was, was practicing this discipline of secrecy. Dallas Willard says it this way, talking about this particular aspect of secrecy. He said, with secrecy in time, we learn to love to be unknown. 
We learn to love it. We learn to love to be off the grid. We learn to love to not be being consumed. We learn to love no one knowing what's going on with our lives. Again, not out of a deceitful way or a hiding way, but out of this, this desire or this, this new way of life that just doesn't need to be always happening publicly, right? And so each time you practice secrecy, you are training your soul to need less attention. You're learning to be present in whatever moment you are in and not focused on broadcasting or sharing that moment with, with others, so this is a little bit self-explanatory, but that's the first reason is that secrecy tames the need for attention. The more you practice it, the more you learn to love being not consumable, right? But let me give you the second reason. The second reason that secrecy is good for your soul is that secrecy frees you from the opinions of others. Secrecy frees you from the opinions of others. We all care what people think or say about us especially the people who say they don't care what people think about them. They care the most of all the people. And so this is another reason secrecy is so vital to our spiritual life because the less we feel the need to broadcast or promote or be public or consumable, even with the best motives, we learn to be secure in our character and in our integrity. That we go to sleep at night, we lay our head on the pillow at night and we know who we are that God is the judge and we are in some way the judge as well of who we are regardless of the opinions of, of other people about our lives. This means that we aren't crushed when we're misunderstood. Anybody just get furious when you're misunderstood or misinterpreted? I do. I'm like, no, 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 let me explain again. Like, you know, we feel the need to promote our strengths all the time. If we in any way feel criticized, we feel like we need to come on the backside and like give a strength of ours so that we're seen in a better way. And so what happens is we feel great when we feel like everyone approves and we feel awful when everyone criticizes because we live a 24-7 public life. We, we live and die on the feedback of others. And so it's not really character and integrity that are the drivers of our life as much as it is the opinions and the, and the feedback of others. And something happens to your soul when you begin to practice the spiritual discipline of secrecy. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen naturally. It's definitely not instinctual. But like every other discipline, the more you pray, the better you get at praying. The more you fast, the better you get at fasting. The more you read the Bible, the better you get at reading the Bible. The same is true with secrecy, is that the more you practice it, the more you begin to, to, to live free from, from the, the, the highs and the lows of other people's opinions of you, right? Now, what's really interesting is... is um, trying to practice this, like in real life. I was thinking about some scenarios and, you know, it's one thing to talk about it and preach it in kind of an overall philosophical way. But what this means in a very practical sense is that the next time that you're with people or family members or at work and someone disagrees with your opinion and, and, and comes back at you with a, with a counter argument or, or someone misunderstands what you were trying to say and 
Maybe their feelings were heard, or maybe they view you differently now because they interpreted your words through a different lens, or, or when someone criticizes something you care about. What this means in practice is that you can not respond, not because you're biting your tongue and you really want to scream or punch them in the face, but you know you're not supposed to, so you don't. But that in practice, it means that you could actually just be okay with the fact that they didn't understand you or they're critical of something about you. You don't feel this need to have to make sure that their opinion of you is high or not, or not overly negative, that you can, you can actually be in that moment and not correct them, even knowing that they're wrong about what they're saying. You could just not correct them. I want you to think about that for a second. You could be in a setting where someone says something you know to be wrong and you don't even have to correct them. You just let them be wrong and you'll be okay. I can see some of your faces. You're like me. You're like, what? Just let them be wrong? I don't understand. You can keep the truth to yourself. You can get in your car and drive home or lay in your bed at night knowing that they believe they have won and they believe you have lost and you sleep like a baby because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Because you don't live and die based on their opinions of you. Jesus modeled this for us when he was standing before Pilate on trial. And Pilate asked him, are you the Messiah? Now, the answer to this question will determine whether or not Jesus lives or dies. And Pilate says, are you the Messiah? Now, if you thought that you might die unless someone knew the truth about you, we'd be like, I definitely am. For sure I am. But what did Jesus do? You go back and read it. Jesus said, whatever you think I am is fine. That's what he said. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But Pilate says to him, are you the Messiah? Like, tell me, I have the power to save your life. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, whatever you think's fine. Don't you think about that? Not because Jesus didn't care. We know that a few hours earlier, he was distraught in the garden about what was about to happen. It was a very uh, anxious experience for him, but he was at peace with him being the only person that knew the truth about him, Right? And this is so counterintuitive, it's scary. And it scares us because our souls have been trained to need approval. I'm gonna give you the third one, okay? Number three, why is secrecy good for your soul? Why is this a spiritual discipline? Because secrecy, number three, helps you truly celebrate others. Truly celebrate others. Most of our affirmation of other people is kind of this um, transactional kind of affirmation where it's like, I'm high on you, you're high on me. I compliment you, you compliment me. I say your kids are awesome, you say my kids are awesome. But something powerful happens with secrecy when you don't have to have the affirmation. Of course, we are sinful people that we're not gonna be totally free from affirmation. Like we need some affirmation. But when you break free from the power of it in your life, and, and so it's similar to number two, but different in one main way. It's one thing, like we talked about in number two, to not defend yourself. It's another thing to truly be happy for someone else getting attention, credit, especially if you feel you deserve the attention or the credit. 
And some of you are like, well, but that may like have to do with my pay bonus or that may have to do with a promotion or you're telling me you just want, like I get to be the only person driving home know that I carried the load on that project? You can. I'm not telling you yes or no. I'm just saying like you could. And you go home and you're totally at peace in your soul because you say, I know and God knows. But it's not this bitter, vindictive, bite my tongue type of way of like, fine, go ahead, take the credit. That's fine, whatever. It's not this passive aggressive like, yeah, no, you did a great job, buddy. Right? It is a genuine joy that comes from seeing other people celebrated instead of yourself. Something amazing begins to happen in your soul the more you practice secrecy. You truly begin to desire others around you to be noticed, celebrated, and recognized more than yourself, that you genuinely begin to rejoice at their success. Let me just tell you, I've noticed for me where this has been one of the hardest areas for me to practice, because like I said, I've been thinking about this secrecy thing for a couple of months now and trying to I don't ever want to preach something I'm not trying to do myself. And, and so I've been thinking about this. And can I tell you the hardest area of the celebration thing for me is my kids. There's something in me that I feel like if you're sounding like your kids are awesome, I've got to in some way let you know, by the way, mine are awesome too. So if you say your kid plays sports, I'm like, really? Mine does too. You say, well, my kid's great at school. I'm like, well, my kid's great at school too. If you said they're just the best kids, I go, you know, some of mine are the best kids too. (laughs) Like there's something inside of me that can't just let the conversation be about how awesome you are, how awesome your family is, how great your kids are. it's, It's just in there where I feel like we've got to leave this conversation in agreement that both are great. And right now where I'm at in the process is like, Holy Spirit, help me to bite my tongue. But where I want to get to is to say like, man, that's awesome. I'm so genuinely happy for you and genuinely happy for your kids. And I don't need for us to be even. You can just be awesome. You can just be blessed. Your kids can just be amazing. Your home can just be beautiful. Your life can just be fantastic. I'm so genuinely happy for you. And this may mean even in some instances that you take steps to, pre- to prevent yourself from getting credit. Now, we don't want to be dishonest. This is not about dishonesty. And this is ne- definitely not reverse psychology to get some backdoor blessing from God. Like, God, I'm not even going to say nothing. I'm not even going to say nothing, God. Yeah, thinking somehow we're earning something. But Jesus actually taught that we should, in some instances, go out of our way to prevent what we're doing being known, right? And so I thought maybe that would be the best way for us to end this talk today would be to just read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter six, specifically teaching the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. It's not on the screen for you. I just wanna read you a few lines from it. He says, In verse five, or no, I'm sorry, in verse one, Jesus says, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired for others. And then in verse five, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray 
publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. And then he says, verse 16, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. They try to look miserable so people will admire them for their fasting. Jesus is is teaching us and showing us and modeled for us this idea that the, the best things and the most powerful things in our life will be the things that very few people see that very few people know about and that it's possible for us to live our life and not feel the need to broadcast it, promote it, share it, and need the approval and the feedback of everyone else about our life. That it would be possible to be the type of person who is more impressive privately than publicly. And we're not being secret because we're ashamed or we're not being secret because we're trying to be dishonest but because something changes in you and in your soul when you know that God is your audience. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. I want to live for an audience of one. I think in this instance, it's appropriate that tonight when I, when I lay down tonight to go to bed, do I know who I am? And obviously God knows who I am, but, but, that's, that's got to be enough. And so anywhere in my life and anywhere in your life where we find ourselves feeling this need, most of it subconscious, but feeling this need to share our lives so that we can feel good about our lives, we've got to come back to Jesus. And we've got to say, Jesus, I want to do it for you. I want to do it for you. I'm not doing it for them. I want to do it for you. And we practice this discipline more and more and more and more and more and become the type of people who are just at peace and we're present in where we are and we're able to put our phones down and we're able to be in a moment, not feeling like we have to capture the moment, aware of the presence of God in our lives, aware of potentially what God may be trying to do in us or through us in those moments because we don't have to live and die by the feedback or the approval or the likes or the comments of others. And so Nehemiah models that for us. Next week, we're gonna get into the actual work that Nehemiah begins to do. But now here, five months or so after praying and fasting and keeping it private, God is getting ready to do something significant through Nehemiah. And he's the only one who knows about it. It's a really beautiful thing. So I'm gonna pray for us. Our team's gonna come and sing for us. We're gonna take communion together. And as we're taking communion together today, we can be reminded that Jesus knew why he came. But for 33 years, even though he tried to tell a few people, nobody really understood it. That even Jesus lived this life with this discipline of secrecy that he knew that he came and he didn't come to to get earthly power. He came to die for our sins, for us to have a relationship with God. And we can be reminded of that today as we take communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the example of someone who lived a life and fully trusted you for the outcomes of their life and attention for their life. And help us to be more like that. Help us to be more like Jesus and not feel this need to define our self-worth based off of other people's views of us or opinions of us or criticisms of us or praise of us. Even in all the little ways, God, only, only we know our motives, only you know our heart, 
But God, even in the little ways where we find ourselves needing affirmation because we don't feel love, because we don't feel good enough, I pray, God, that you would help us to to stop looking outside for that type of approval. And we just look to you, God. We'd look to you. I pray that you would help us to be people of character, people of integrity, that we would be more impressive privately than we are publicly or what we try to project that we are. In Jesus' name we pray.